0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the St John's Personal Injury podcast. Uh, My name is David Forster, I'm a barrister in the personal injury team at St John's Chambers and I'm joined today by my colleague in Chambers, Mr James Hughes.
1: Hello everybody, I am also a barrister in St John's Chambers Personal Injury Team.
0: Thanks James. We're going to be looking today at some issues regarding Part 36 offers in personal injury litigation. Specifically, we're going to be looking at the circumstances when the consequences of failing to beat a Part 36 offer or the consequences of accepting a Part 36 offer late can be avoided. Now, in the rules, it states that the court must apply those consequences unless it considers it unjust to do so, which is where we get the title of today's podcast from, which is Part 36, unjust or only just. Anyone listening to this, we, we already presume that you know what a Part 36 offer is. We're not going to do a deep dive into that. If you don't know what a Part 36 offer is, there's not going to be a great deal in this podcast for you, I shouldn't think. Now, why is this important? Well, there have been two recent developments in this area. The first one are the changes to the qualified one-way cost-shifting rules, uh, known as quox. They came in in April 2023 and were brought in specifically in response to the cases of Cartwright and Venduct and Ho and Adelican. There is already a podcast available on the St John's website with James Marrick and Rachel Siegel that goes into those changes in some depth. That it's it's a great podcast and it's definitely worth checking that out if you're unsure as to what the full effect of those changes is going to be. But in brief, defendants are now able under the new rules to enforce costs orders against settlements in personal injury litigation. Previously they could only be enforced against damages awarded by the court so claimants could settle uh, and not fear having to pay defendants costs out of those damages. That has now changed. And the second issue we're going to be considering is is a recent high court decision on the effect or effectiveness of liability split offers in personal injury litigation and James is going to deal with that later on. But first of all moving now to the issue of uh, late acceptance of a part 36 offer. Previously the position was that a claimant who accepted a defendant's offer of, of settlement, a part 36 offer would lose its entitlement to costs between the expiry of that part 36 offer and their ultimate acceptance of it. Now that the the changes to the rules have come in, The situation is that the claimant will also be liable to pay the defendant's costs for that same period from the end of the expiry of the offer up to the acceptance of the offer out of the settlement funds. The most common scenario where you have late acceptance would be when a defendant makes a Part 36 offer relatively early in the stages of litigation and at a time when the claimant had not yet finalised their medical evidence and the lawyers advising them could not accurately value the claim, and so could not endorse that that offer of settlement. Then what would happen is time would pass, more medical evidence would be obtained, and the medical evidence that was obtained would reveal that actually that Part 36 offer made at an early stage by a defendant should be accepted. Now the question is whether the claimant should be punished in costs for taking that extra time to accept that Part 36 offer. The rules that we're looking at here is part 36.13, headed cost consequences of acceptance of a part 36 offer. Here we go, yes, 36.13.5. The court must, unless it considers unjust to do so, order that the claimant be awarded costs up to the date on which the relevant period expired, and B, the offeree do pay the offeror's costs for the period from the date of expiry of the relevant period to the date of acceptance. 13.36. In considering whether it would be unjust to make the orders specified in paragraph 5, the court must take into account all the circumstances of the case, including the matters listed in Rule 3617.5. 3617.5 tells us the court must take into account all those circumstances of the case, but gives us five key considerations being the terms of the Part 36 offer the stage in the proceedings when any Part 36 offer was made, including in particular how long before the trial started the offer was made, the information available to the parties at the time when the Part 36 offer was made, the conduct of the parties with regard to the giving or refusal to give information for the purposes of enabling the offer to be made or evaluated, and whether the offer was a genuine attempt to settle the proceedings. It's one of these sort of judicial considerations, looking at the whole circumstances of the case, But in reality, it's quite a wide discretion upon the court. And as we see as we look at the cases, it's quite fact-sensitive. But let's have a look now at some case law that will hopefully give us some insight as to how these decisions will go. The first case that I'm going to flag up is the case of S.G. and Hewitt. It's a Court of Appeal case from 2012. The facts of that case, briefly, are it involves an infant claimant who suffered a brain injury. The defendant made a Part 36 offer in the spring of 2009 it uh, wasn't accepted by the claimant until the summer of 2011 the position in 2009 when the offer was made was that it was too early to tell what the full effect on the claimant was going to be at that time he was he had not yet achieved adolescence that is a key milestone in seeing how a brain injury uh, is going to affect a child going forward the court considered all of those factors that are now set out in 36.17.5, I think they were set out somewhere else at the time, but also that the specific circumstances of that case and the court was keen to stress that these sorts of decisions are, are very fact-sensitive. However, when we, when we look through this case, it's clear that a primary consideration for the Court of Appeal in this matter was that given that the claimant was an infant, that approval of the court would be required for any settlement, That was proposed in the case. I'm just going to read from Lady Justice Black at paragraph 70, uh, where she says I I do not mean the mere fact that approval was required was definitive in the claimant's favour, but that the implications of it needed to be put into the balance related to the specifics of the case, along with the rest of the relevant factors. Not only was there considerable doubt as to whether it would have been possible to obtain approval before adolescence, the requirement to seek approval also had clear practical implications in costs. All the costs incurred after the making of the offer were incurred exclusively in investigating the acceptability of the offer and obtaining the evidence necessary to obtain approval. This was a unanimous decision of the Court of Appeal, and Lady Justice Black was was supported by uh, Lord Justice Arden, who said at paragraph 77, In this case, the time that elapsed between the date on which the Part 36 offer expired and the date on which that offer was accepted was needed to enable those advising the child to be satisfied that the offer could be properly accepted. This was because the prognosis for the claimant's injury could only be accurately determined by waiting until he neared or reached adolescence. In my judgment, these are circumstances which make it unjust not to depart from the general risk-shifting rule in Part 36. In my judgment, this is therefore a case in which the court can be satisfied that it is unjust not to order otherwise under Part 36, 10, 5, as it was then. And if we think about it, that seems logical. On its face, it just doesn't seem right to punish a claimant in costs for failing to accept an offer of settlement, which, if it had come to the court seeking the court's approval of that offer, would not have been obtained.
1: David, how... Fact specific in this case, do you think the question of the claimant being an infant was? And by that, I mean, how important is this issue in practice as to whether a court will consider that it is unjust to deprive the defendant of its costs post the expiry of the relevant period? Well,
0: yes, I mean, it's a good question. And you'll see when you read these authorities, you see the courts. um, It's one of those circumstances where they're desperate not to sort of set out a hard and fast test. They're really trying not to say, in this circumstance, it must be unjust. In this circumstance, it definitely is just or anything like that. They hammer on throughout about how this is very, very fact specific. It's all the relevant circumstances of the case. The biggest one in this case, I think, is that it seems to be accepted by all that when you're dealing with an infant who suffered a significant brain injury, you have to wait to see how it's going to develop. But in my view, and I think we'll see this from the other cases as well, that crucial consideration is, would the settlement have been approved if it had been accepted back at the time that it was made within the the expiry period?
1: What about if you haven't got a brain-injured claimant and or protected party?
0: This is going to be the question going forward, because now that we've had the changes to the Quox rules, this whole argument has shifted somewhat. So... In this case, this is obviously very, very high value litigation, the legal costs are going to be extremely high. The question for the Court of Appeal here was not whether the claimant should have to pay the defendant's costs between expiry and acceptance. It was only whether or not the claimant was entitled to his own costs between that period. So the question is whether the claimant ought to have given up those costs, not as to whether the claimant should have to pay the defendant's costs for the same period. Claimants now, following the change of the rules, are facing actually a much more significant penalty thinking about it now imagine a litigation on a much lower scale you've got a an offer comes in for a hundred thousand pounds it might not even be a brain injury but it's a pain case or it might be a an orthotics case or something like that where medical evidence is going to continue on you're going to need to see how the claimant deals with certain issues how they respond to a certain surgery for example updated scans all that sort of thing so all also you have this offer of a hundred thousand pounds you take a couple of years finalizing your medical evidence and then things look pretty positive for the claimant. He's doing pretty well. Uh, He's not going to need all this expensive treatment in the future. As such, 100 grand now becomes a very attractive offer for the claimant and he ought to accept it. But in that two-year period, defendant has racked up 50 grand's worth of costs, maybe obtaining his own medical evidence, building up a cost schedule. Now, if the claimant wants to accept that 100,000 pound offer out of time, he'll have to give up half of it to the defendant to pay the defendant's cost bill that's been accrued in the same time, as well as not receiving his own legal costs for that same period. It's a much harsher penalty now. The cases that I've found on this all do involve protected parties. What I was going to do is compare that case, S.G. and Hewitt, to a much more recent case, a 2022 case in the High Court before a Master, uh, the case of MRA and the Education Fellowship Limited. That concerned a child sexual abuse claim against the school. Circumstances are that a Part 36 offer came in uh, at eighty thousand pounds before medical evidence was finalised. The claim form gave a statement of value of a hundred thousand pounds at that time, but the schedule of loss prepared uh, was mainly TBC, so special damages had not been uh, had not been finalised at that point either. Claimant asked the defendant for an extension for the time for acceptance. That was ignored by the defendant. As time progressed, it became clear that that offer of 80,000 pounds was going to be a good offer, and the claimant sought to accept it. The defendant sought to enforce its costs for the period between expiry of the offer and the acceptance against the damages. That was at about 40,000 pounds. This decision was made, it was made after Cartwright and Van However, it sort of operated on, unfortunately, a premise that was later corrected that settlements that required the approval of the court were still in fact awards of damages and deductions could still be made to them for defendant costs orders. That was later corrected by the Court of Appeal. But in any sense, the defendant was arguing that they should be able to enforce about £40,000 of costs against the £80,000 settlement that was proposed that the claimant now wanted to accept. The claimant argued, as it was argued in SG and Hewitt, that the court would not have approved the settlement on behalf of the child without complete medical evidence. Master MacLeod noted from the authorities that there is a heavy burden on the party that is seeking to show injustice. And at paragraph 78 of her judgment, she said that, that as to the point that a court would not have approved this settlement unless prognosis was clear, this point was one which I considered carefully and perhaps at face value the most enticing one but masters are experienced in knowing the practical realities of litigation and injury quantification, and we benefit from exposure to the start, often the trial, and then the settlement or aftermath of the case. In this instance, if an advice had been presented which set out the effect above, namely that on any basis reasonably likely this offer was high-end and that litigation risks and the risks of the offer made it prudent to settle, I believe a judge in my position would have approved it. So what we can see there is the High Court, with hindsight, going back and saying to claimant lawyers, well, yes, there was doubt as to how this case was going to progress. But you can factor that in to your legal advice. You can factor that in when you're considering the offer. And a master in my position would have approved it. I don't think it's controversial to say that that, that, that's something of a worrying result for claimants. I don't know what your thoughts on that would be, James.
1: I agree. I I was about to ask you, is one corollary to that decision that, that Master McLeod effectively stepping in to say, no claimant, it's not unjust because had I looked at the settlement as it would have looked at the time the offer was made, I would have approved it. Well yes,
0: yeah that's exactly that's exactly right. you say either myself or a master in my position, such as our experience with this type of litigation, that we could have factored in the uncertainty of the medical evidence against the litigation risk and the future cost risks and everything else like that. And if you'd have asked me for approval, then I would have approved it. Now, on face value, it's very easy. And as they say, hindsight is twenty twenty. And if you're a claimant saying, now we can see that this is a good offer to accept, but back then we couldn't, you're already on the back foot
1: a bit there, I it, think. It, it makes me think that a claimant has to think carefully and in robust terms about an early offer in a protected party case. And by that I mean whether it's likely that the settlement would be approved at the point at which the offer is made, because one corollary to Master McLeod's decision is that if you don't accept it saying, well, look, judge, we need to consider the position further, then you might fall foul of the unjust provisions and might have to offset defendant's costs against damages.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. If you get an offer like this from the defendant, just because your medical evidence is not complete and you don't have a final prognosis, you can't automatically assume that incomplete medical evidence is going to protect you under these unjust provisions. And you can't assume that incomplete medical evidence is going to mean that the court, with hindsight, wouldn't consider that it would have approved that settlement in the circumstances anyway. You're starting from a handicapped position there as a claimant because ultimately the settlement was suitable and should have been approved. And so you're effectively asking the master or the judge to go back and say, you wouldn't have got this quite right, judge, if we'd have brought it to you back then. You'd have kicked the can down the road, so to speak. Yeah, it's a worrying position, I think, for claimants when you receive now an early Part 36 offer before you finalised your medical evidence. You can't just assume that you're safe because you can't accurately value the claim at that stage. That's a bit of a concerning case for, for claimants. But there is, in fact, a more recent case that I've been reading and it's the case of IEH and Powell and that's a high court decision from 2023 before senior master Fontaine. Quite similar facts to the case of SG and Hewitt, again an infant claimant and again a brain injury and a lack of a firm prognosis as to what the, what the full effects of this brain injury are going to be over time. The facts of it were, uh, the claimant, again, was a child. He was eight years old when he was in a, involved in a road traffic accident, suffered multiple injuries, the most serious of which were femoral fracture and a traumatic brain injury. A Part 36 offer was made by the defendant in November 2020. In response, just as in MRA, claimant solicitors asked for more time for acceptance in order to establish the likely prognosis. Again, that, w- that was not agreed by the defendants. After further medical evidence was obtained, uh, the offer was ultimately accepted uh, in July of 2022. Again, similar to SG and Hewitt, time passes between the expiry of the offer and then the claimant seeking to accept it. The question for the court was, is the claimant entitled to his costs for that period between the expiry of the offer and the acceptance of the same? This is a very detailed judgment from senior Master Fontaine, and he looked in detail at the provisions at uh, 3615, and considered in detail the earlier authority of SG and Hewitt. Uh, and there are a few sort of choice quotes from that case, which I think are important to highlight. This is a paragraph 52, where uh, Senior Master Fontaine says, that I note that the authorities make it clear that simply because a claimant or those advising them has acted reasonably, is not sufficient on its own to make the usual order in 3613.5 unjust, but it is of relevance when considering all the circumstances. So what you have there is a senior master in the High Court saying, well, looking at all the authorities, just because claimant solicitors have acted reasonably doesn't mean that it's unjust. There's a difference there. There's a demarcation between those two factors. Which is somewhat surprising that you know the provisions of Part 36.13 or Part 36.17 are supposed to be somewhat punitive. I don't know what your view on that is. James, but that's the impression that I've got people refer to it as a sort of punitive interest and as, as the punitive consequences of Part 36.
1: It's a high watermark, isn't it? Acting reasonably does not necessarily mean that you do not fall foul of having to pay after late acceptance. I personally don't think it's entirely surprising because, it, taken to its logical conclusion, it is saying just because you act reasonably on what you knew at the time does not mean that a defendant should necessarily be deprived of having its costs from post-expiry of relevant period to acceptance taken away from it. And I say that because you're right, the penalty bit of what we always understand to be part 36 consequences for a claimant, the thrust is you beat your offer for a claimant and then you get what follows it in order to act as some kind of penalty. That's not the entire gist of it, is it? But here, you've got the reverse. Um, just because you behaved reasonably on what you knew about the offer at the time doesn't mean you'll get away with it.
0: In my view, you know,
1: the provisions, the consequences
0: that are set out in 3613 or 3617, the design is to apply pressure to the parties to settle claims that should be settled. And it's a case of, it's a bit of sort of carrot and stick, isn't it? Take the carrot or else you get the stick. But it, it's something of a stark result in that a, the court can recognise that a party hasn't acted unreasonably. That doesn't automatically mean that it's unjust for that party to be punished in costs. But in this case, in IEH and Powell, Senior Master Fontaine returned to that issue, which, on my reading, was the most important factor in SG and Hewitt and was labelled by Master McLeod as one of the most important factors in the MRA case. And that is, because the claimant is an infant and because the settlement would have required approval, the question for the court is, well, would the court have approved the settlement at the time? And at paragraph 54, Senior Master Fontaine says, I consider it extremely doubtful that the court would have been able to approve the claimant's acceptance of the offer in late 2020 on the basis of the evidence as it was. And it would have been most likely that the approval hearing would have been postponed and directions given to obtain updated factual and expert evidence. That is not the only relevant factor, but as in SG and Hewitt, it is relevant to the question of injustice. See paragraphs 67 to 69 of that decision, where the court concluded that the judge below had erred in not treating this as a relevant factor. So, again, we return to this question would the court have approved this settlement if asked, or would it have approved the claimant's acceptance of it? Court steps in to make sure that, it, that it's in the claimant's best interest to accept that offer, and again, it, it seems entirely logical that a party or a claimant, particularly an infant claimant, should not be punished in costs or should not face any sort of disadvantage or detriment in costs for failing to accept an offer that it wouldn't have been permitted to accept at the time anyway. If the claimant had sought to accept that offer, it would have been futile. The court would have knocked them back and said, no, no, you need to go and get more medical evidence. So the idea that, or the concept that you face some detriment for that decision, I think, it has a lot of force to it. You'll notice the common theme in these cases, James, is they're all infants.
1: What do you do if you've got a claimant that isn't an infant or protected party now then?
0: That's going to be the question. The reported case law on this seems to, certainly on this issue, on late acceptance, seems to deal primarily with, with infant cases. I don't know whether that's because they are the sort of cases that drag on for much longer than normal personal injury litigation. Or whether it's cases where the costs are so high that under the old regime, where the claimants were all they were doing was giving up their entitlement to costs, that was still a very, very significant sum of money. And so that's why these cases were finding themselves back in the High Court or up to the Court of Appeal. Due to the change of the rules, it's now going to bleed into lower value litigation. And the question is going to be what's going to be the effect for non protected parties? One view might be where you say you find yourself in a situation that is analogous to these. To these infants these these child cases but you're not a protected party you've got incomplete medical evidence you get an early offer you think i just don't know the prognosis i don't know whether you're going to be afflicted for two years or you're going to be afflicted for 20 years and i can't possibly advise you to accept an offer on this basis until i can answer that question
1: it makes me think actually that it should encourage or could encourage in higher value cases which are i'll use the phrase front loaded where you've got a serious injury and a claimant who for example gets a report early on in the litigation a serious spinal injuries case for example and the as you touched on earlier the outcome in respect of treatment is unknown what kind of surgery for example will be required and then the prognosis after it but if for an insurer your suspicion is that you could be facing a high value claim which is difficult to quantify at the moment the quox rule amendments are to your advantage in making an early offer.
0: Oh, certainly. Yes. If you're a defendant and you've got a bit of medical evidence, but an incomplete picture, definitely worth making making that early part thirty-six offer, because all of a sudden now you're applying quite significant pressure to the claimant and their representatives because they now have to either think very hard about should we balance every possible risk, the litigation risk and the risk of being hit with costs. Has the medical expert said that, you know, there are two or three possible outcomes here? And what's the likelihood of each? And do we
1: factor those in mathematically? If you've got Master McLeod saying, um, it's not unjust, because I would have approved this settlement then, then surely it must make it harder for a claimant who is not a, a protected party, and therefore can't or an infant can't say, well, look, judge, we, we didn't know what we needed to know. And so it wouldn't have been approved. It puts more pressure on you on my question, what do you do if you've not got a protected party or infant claimant?
0: Well, I mean, if you, say your claimant's not a protected party and you're in this situation and you want to accept an offer late and you want to avoid the consequences under 3613 and you want to come up and make an argument that it would be unjust to apply those consequences. One logical argument might be, well, judge, consider if my claimant was a protected party. If my claimant was a protected party and we came to you two or three years ago seeking approval of this settlement, would you have approved it? But there's a problem with
1: that. It's disanalogous because they're not a protected party. Because they're not
0: a protected party. Defenders are just going to stand up and say, you're not a protected party. There was no
1: barrier to you accepting this
0: offer at the time. Because your attempt to accept that offer would not have been futile, as it may have been for a protected party. So yes, you think, oh, if I was a child, maybe you would have treated me differently, Judge, but, but you're not a child. And maybe, perhaps, if you haven't got a protected party, you certainly run the risk as a claimant, of running into a master or a judge who'll sort of say, well, if you'd just applied your mind more keenly to all these different issues and factors and the risks involved, you could have seen, as I do now with the benefit of hindsight, (laughs) that that was an appropriate settlement uh, to, to take. An argument that's often advanced against invoking the unjust principle under Part 36 13 is that to do so would effectively undermine the purpose of Part 36 as a whole. In that these provisions exist to apply pressure to parties to come to sensible early settlements of a claim. And that was considered by Senior Master Fontaine in IEH and Powell. They deal with it at paragraph 69, where it said that, I also am cognizant of the caution advised in the authorities as to the high hurdle that is considered appropriate for a claimant to come within the provisions of 36.13.5, described as a formidable obstacle in Smith, Nevertheless, the Part 36 regime recognises that the application of Rule 36.13.5 has the potential to cause injustice and provides a mechanism for avoiding any injustice in Rule 36.13.6 in appropriate cases. So it's not the case that allowing a claimant to escape these consequences on the basis that it's unjust flatly undermines the purpose of Part 36. It's there in the language of Part 36 itself that this has the potential to cause injustice and that should be avoided where possible. As we discovered, as for the cases of protected parties, you have quite a clear, I think, line going through these authorities. Despite what the courts say about them being hugely fact-specific and having to take in all the factors and all the circumstances of the case, there is, I think, a, a clear line which is that question of the approval of the settlement. But how that will be applied to non-protected parties now that, the, now that the potential cost consequences are so much more severe is very uncertain. And so, James, my thinking at this point would be that if you're a claimant, you get a Part 36 offer in early. Best thing to do is to go out and get advice as quickly as possible.
1: I agree. I agree. Send it out to council, keeping a careful eye on whether you feel red-blooded enough as a claimant um, that you're going to beat that offer given all the litigation risks.
0: And yeah, you'll have to factor in now all these different considerations, including Mm -hmm. the harsher penalty and costs that you'll face for late acceptance. Mm -hmm. What we're going to move on to now is split liability offers in personal injury litigation
1: and whether you can make effective use of them. Two-thirds from David, one-third or thereabouts from me now, guys. Yes, Mundy and Tui. That's the liability split that we agreed on this, isn't it? There we go. Look at that. Now, a recent decision of Mrs Justice Collins Rice. Well, the citation for you, I should say, if you want it, is decisions of the England-Wales High Court for 2023, judgment number 385 in the Chancery Division. And and this was a a Bristol District Registry case. And the facts were that Mr Mundy, went on holiday to Mexico and contracted holiday sickness and he sued the defendant and he won at trial. He won on liability, breach of an implied term of his holiday contract for getting sick, having eaten food on holiday and causation of some damage as a result. But rather than being compensated in the amount that he said he would be by a Part 36 offer on quantum of 20 grand, um, the judge awarded him 3700 for general damages and special damages of 105 pounds and 60. The defendant had made a quantum part 36 offer of 4 grand. And so with Mr Mundy's damages being less than that figure the defendant had beaten its offer. But in addition Mr Mundy had also made a liability offer of 9010 in his favour. So he'd made two offers and the defendant had made one. And it was against that backdrop and David's right to say that the parties agreed that the practice of making liability offers was a commonplace thing by the time it, the case had got to appeal. But on its face, the, the claimant had failed to beat the defendant's offer in money terms, but he said that he had beaten his liability offer because he'd gone to trial and judgment had been for liability in full. Now, the judge, when asked to consider the question of costs at trial, is honour Parks, Casey, found that it would have been unjust if the claimant's ninety ten offer had come within the Part 36 scheme to have deprived him of the cost consequences of beating that offer. And the judge also found that the defendant was entitled to offset its costs against damages, but the party subsequently compromised that issue on the appeal after the Supreme Court had said, you can't do that in Ho and Now, of course, this was a case which predated the Quox amendments that David has touched upon and that Rachel and James talk about in the other very good podcast. The nub of the judgment in Mundy and Tui is in two paragraphs, it seems to me, 36 and 41. And at paragraph 36, Mrs. Justice Collins-Rice said, a 90-10 liability offer is not straightforward to recognise as an offer to settle a whole claim on quantified or quantifiable financial terms in a case where there is no genuine question of issues-based liability. Now, pause there. That's quite a knotty sentence to unpick and unpack. But I think the key bit of it is in a case where there is no genuine question of issues-based liability. Another way of, of describing that is a an all-or-nothing case. And the judge in Mundy was of the view that Really what Mr Mundy's claim was about was not whether the defendant was liable for the holiday sickness that he had contracted, but rather um, what causation flowed from the fact that because he ate food that he shouldn't have done while on the holiday and contracted sickness there, what measure of damages was to be paid to him. Now, my own view is that post Mundy, which I see from Westlaw has not yet had any substantial judicial treatment, but is a card that defendants will and should use. One of the questions on whether you make a ninety ten offer at all is whether there is going to be any meaningful issue on the question of either liability or or an apportionment, because that sets the context. It seems for me about what mundi really means in practice. Now the other paragraph, which I said was the nub of the judgment, is forty one and. In that paragraph, Mrs. Justice Collins-Rice said this of why she thought that a 90-10 liability offer made by the claimant in this case didn't come within the Part 36 scheme. And she says, it makes a 90-10 liability offer into a means for a claimant who fails to beat a money offer to settle his claim, to recoup a substantial premium for winning, in inverted commas, the case nevertheless. It's an attempt at a unilaterally imposed insurance policy to reverse the losses otherwise provided for by Rule 3617. It is, in other words, an attempt to use CPR 3617 against itself, contrary to both its letter and spirit. Now, again, a paragraph with lots of important stuff in it, the key bit of which is where you are a claimant in a case where there is not going to ever to be any realistic dispute about who is liable for the damage caused. That is to say, you, you either win on liability or you don't. But if you've got a money offer from the defendant on the table, then you cannot use a ninety ten offer or similar to ensure yourself against the risk that you go to trial and you don't beat a defendant's money offer. I have to say that that strikes me as being a persuasive point, because what the letter and spirit of Part 36 is, is whether or not... A party has beaten, in money terms, an offer that the offeror has made. What do I think, therefore, a party should take away from what Mundy says? Well, there is one thing to say at the outset, that Mrs Justice Collins-Rice was not taken to other cases in which offers to apportion liability or to net off, as it were, claimant's damages in percentage terms which were beaten at trial, were considered to be within the Part 36 scheme. It was in fact said in the judgment by Mrs. Justice Collins-Rice, I was not encouraged by the parties to seek assistance from the decided authorities in interpreting what Rule 36.17.1 me- means on the basis that the basics of how it operates are not in dispute, and there is no authority on rejected 90.10 offers. Well, it seems to me is right to say that, that there is authority on what different judges have done in cases where you have offers like a 90-10 offer on the issue of what to take away from Mundi. If you are a claimant and you are thinking about making these kind of offers, once you've taken a view on whether your case is an all or nothing case, you may want to have these two cases, which I'm going to tell you about, in your pocket. The first is a decision of Mr Justice Foskin in the case of JMX and Norfolk and Norwich Hospitals. And the citation there is, um, decisions for the England and Wales High Court for 2018, judgment number 285 in the Queen's Bench Division. And there, the court tried the preliminary issue of liability in a, in a clinical negligence claim in what was found to be an all or nothing case. And the claimant had made a Part 36 to accept 90% of damages in a case in which the quantum of the claim was likely to run into the millions of pounds. And the claimant got his Part 36.17 consequences. But a pause there. I, value, it seems to me, and a high-value claim, and what a claimant is doing by saying we will take a deduction from the full value of our claim is important. Was it seen to be important in the earlier decision of the Jockey Club Racecourse Limited and Wilmot Dixon Construction Limited, that's a decision of Mr Justice Edward Stewart in the TCC from 2016, the citation 2016 EWHC 167. And in that case, the claimant sued the defendant for damage to the grandstand roof of Epsom racecourse. So not a PI case, but it seems to me important. It's reasoning or helpful to a claimant when you're thinking about making a liability offer and that roof had been built by the defendant and it had been damaged in and what were subsequently accepted to be foreseeable high wind. Liability conceded by the time the parties got to PTR and the claimant offered to accept 95% of the value of its claim, which at full value was 400 grand for the damage of this roof and consequential loss. And so 5% of that four hundred grand amounted to £20,000. Now, Mr Justice Edward Stewart, in reviewing the authorities as they were up to that point, said um, that a discount by the claimant in that offer was not derisory, quote unquote. And so the claimant was entitled to Part 36 Consequences. Pull all of that together. What do I think is a logical way of approaching it? Well, the first question is, do you think you've got an all or nothing case? Answer, if you do, then on an application of Monday, then it, you, you may be at risk on the argument that a liability split offer or an offer to apportion the issue of liability may not come within the Part 36 scheme. If you think there is an argument about apportionment, uh, I think you're probably on safer ground. If you don't, those cases of JMX and the Jockey Club are a starting point. Another thing to say, I think, is that Mundi has probably not decided this issue. It is clearly, on one analysis, distinguishable, uh, where you haven't got, for example, a holiday sickness claim. You've got another type of claim, for example, a road traffic accident, where you might think that an apportionment of liability is more within the scope of what a judge could be doing at trial on the issue of liability. The other thing to say is that Mrs Justice Collins Rice doesn't appear to have heard full argument on the cases where the courts considered Apportionment Part 36 offers. That, that said, I do think Monday is a is a useful weapon in a defendant's arsenal, at least for the time being, and at least until we haven't had a further high court decision considering it. So Monday, obviously, there was the issue of competing offers.
0: So we had quantum offer from the defendant, which the defendant had, had bettered in competition with the ninety ten offer from the claimant. In cases where there is there are no competing offers, say there's no offer from the defendant, defendant's fighting on liability, so it's not inclined to make any offer, and there's a 9010 offer from the claimant, and contribution negligence is not really going to be an issue. Is it your view that Monday then is authority that a, that 9010 offer just falls away and doesn't bite?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. it is. It's authority for the proposition that in a case which is not all or nothing. Unless you've got a case which or where apportionment falls within the likely findings that the judge could make, you can say in an all or nothing case for a defendant, that offer doesn't bite. It doesn't come within the scheme of Part 36.
0: Effectively, defendants don't need to panic about, you know, a ninety ten 10 or a 95-5 offer sitting there as a sort of an extra bet from the claimant, sort of saying to the claimant, I bet you will win. And if we win, you have to pay us some extra costs and some
1: extra damages. A claimant can't use it as the stick. The defendant's monetary offer is the more important offer for the purposes of the Part 36 scheme. Carrot Trump stick, I think, is where I come to at the moment on and one reading of Monday. And again, it seems to me that defendants can think that if they've put in a decent or reasonable early offer on quantum in a case where there isn't going to be a meaningful dispute about who's liable or not, you might think as a defendant, well, we're stuffed on liability here because the issues are hard and, and fast. Really, what we're talking about is quantum then you stick by your decent quantum offer and should not be concerned by a claimant making a liability offer.
0: All right, well say, imagine, so on the opposite side of things, you're a claimant and you've got a defendant who you think is being intransigent and is disputing the claim, maybe not on liability, but on causation. I say not on liability, not on breach, but on causation with liability still remaining an issue. You think you've got a very, very good case on causation what's the best way for you to sort of tactically take advantage of that advantage that you think you have on, on the causation case?
1: Well, m- make a competitive Part 36 offer. In money terms, you mean?
0: Yes, I do. Rather than just saying 90-10 of whatever we get, make a quantum offer that sort of reflects a bit of a, a 90-10.
1: If the case is only ever going to be about causation, if there isn't, as in one of the cases in, that was cited in Mundi, David, if breach of duty could never be an issue because there had been an admission of breach of duty. And that was the case of Seabrook and Adam in the Court of Appeal. That's at paragraph 48 of the Mundi judgment. If you're only talking about causation, Mundi is authority for the proposition that, that you can't make a valid Part 36 liability offer. So is, is Mundy the sort of death knell for the, for the litigation risk offer? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think one corollary to it is that you have to decide. There are two baskets of cases now, it seems to me. One where there will always be no argument about the question of liability, either because you're you're on a slam dunk or because you can't, because you've had an admission. And cases where there is going to be a meaningful argument about it. As I say, one obvious type of case to put in the basket of cases where there will be an argument is road traffic cases. looking at the risk profile of a case, there is nearly always a range of opinion as to who's, if there is going to be a split, what that split should be.
0: Great. Well, there we go. Lots to think about in Part 36, both on the issue of, of late acceptance and of these liability split offers. I suppose the advice for anybody listening, if you are a solicitor, claimant or defendant, and you really want to make the most of the provisions of Part 36 and use the tactical advantages that are available to you within the rules, It's all about putting in well-pitched quantum offers, it seems to me. If you're a defendant, get them in early. If you're a claimant and you think you've got a good case on liability, then make make a strong, well-pitched Part 36 offer. I don't know what you think, James.
1: I agree. Absolutely. Very good advice on which to finish, I think. Lovely. Well, guys, thank you very much for listening to us talk there about a a technical area and one that is developing and has had important recent developments. Now... If you want to get in touch with David or I or any of my colleagues in Chambers or the clerks, then I would direct you to Chambers' website in the first instance, and you've got all the contact details you need there. I would also say, and um, please do go away and listen to the other podcasts that we've done as part of this series. So thank you very much for listening from me. And thank you very much from me as well.